coming up, Michael continues his celebration of Disneyland's 60th with more of Disneyland After Walt. That's next. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 582 for the week of January 5th, 2016. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel helping you plan that perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friends, Marjo Malata-Willie. Hello. Michael Bowling. Hey there, hi there, ho there. And Rhino Clavin. Hello. Hey, hey, weird. <laughs> All right. Hello. Don't call him weird. He's cute. Aww. I'm just going to do a different perfect, voice. Though, because we're going to be talking quite a bit about Walt Disney World nice. in this episode. So this we I think we skipped one. We had a special guest. The last, or we had something special last time. But mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, we had um, the first part of this Disneyland after Walt. So I'll try to put a link to the show notes page in this for that. But this is basically what the second half of the 70s. It is, right. As we spoke about in the first episode of the 1970s, um, we said that the end of the 1960s marked the end of Walt's Disneyland. Uh, The park would become even more dependent on consensus by a group of talented individuals who had worked with Walt Disney, but some would be paralyzed by trying to guess what would Walt do, (laughs) and others would flourish in their new freedom. But as the 1970s began, the focus of Walt Disney Productions and WED was primarily on Walt Disney World. Um, That resort was scheduled to open in Lake Buena Vista, Florida in the fall of 1971. Included in the project is a Disneyland East, which is to be named the Magic Kingdom. And although Disneyland was no longer the center of attention for the Disney company, it was in no way neglected. So in part one, we talked about the changes that came to Main Street USA and the launch of two Disneyland parades, which still rank as amongst the favorites of longtime Disneyland fans. So um, as Tom mentioned, we'll have a link to that episode in our show notes. But the 1970s was a decade of thrills for Disneyland with the opening of the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and Space Mountain. Um, A favorite attraction packed up and headed east to be replaced by a singing menagerie of patriotic critters. (laughs) And several attractions lost their sponsorship, which resulted in a name change for two of Walt's most beloved attractions. And a sleuth of singing bears left the ski slopes and moved into a brand new realm in Disneyland. Now, when you think about it, Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion were the first musical shows guests could ride through. As guests ride through the attractions on their bateau or doom buggies, the audio-animatronic figures give brief performances. Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln featured our 16th president delivering a very staid and serious speech. So Disney Imagineers were challenged to create a musical stage show, which was a significant test for the audio-animatronics technology. So after working on the ride through Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion attractions, um, Mark Davis wanted to create the next-generation Tiki Room-style audio-animatronics show, 
Now, originally created by Mark Davis for Walt Disney's Mineral King Ski Resort project, the Country Bear Jamboree opened a great accolades in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom in 1971. That show featured 22 animated musical bears and other assorted critters, with the star of the show being Big Al, mm. who was inspired by Imagineer Albertino. The lines for the Bear Jamboree, as it was referred to, were so long that the decision was quickly made to set up a theater for the bears to entertain guests at Disneyland. The only question was where in Disneyland should the bears perform? Now, Ryan, did you see um, the Country Bear Jamboree before the uh, sort of the um, the Reader's Digest version that there is now? Um. I mean, it's it's definitely one of my family's favorite attractions. So I've seen it since like it's it's something I remember going to as a little kid. I don't know that I actively can remember anything being changed from it, though. Like when I see it now, because I, I saw it, I saw it like last week or something like that. I I don't notice things, you know, like I remember the big bear coming out of the ceiling and like the mm-hmm. blood and the water song and stuff. So I don't I don't know that I know. When you tell this story, maybe I'm going to hear some stuff that I will then realize was missing. Yeah, well, well, Tom, Mary Jo, and I, you know, we remember the full show. What they've done is they've cut out the dialogue oh. um, in the show. It's just now a series of songs. Did like they, they, used, really? they used to talk to each other more. Because when I was yeah. a kid, I feel like I remembered the, the, the main bear, whose name is escaping me right now. Henry. I thought he Henry. spoke to everybody a lot more. He did, yeah. Okay. They all did. I remember mm-hmm. that. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the answer to where to put the country bears was in the first large addition to Disneyland since New Orleans Square, Pirates of the Caribbean, and the Haunted Mansion in the late 1960s. Bear Country, Disneyland's seventh themed land, opened on March 24, 1972. No new attraction had opened at Disneyland in three years. And this was the longest the park had ever gone without a new attraction. We just chuckle now at, the, at that. <laughs> three years without a new attraction, long time. <laughs> the Country Bear Jamboree was the centerpiece of this new four-acre land. The land was themed to remind visitors of the Great Northwest and was planted with more than 265 trees, including coastal redwoods, locust, white birch, evergreen elm, and various species of pine, and as well as trees moved from other areas of the property. The Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad was once again rerouted to accommodate the new land. Bear Country occupied the site of the Frontierland Indian Village. Since the early days of the park, real Native Americans shared their songs, crafts, and culture with guests. In the late 1960s, a series of labor disputes had begun between the, Dis- between the Disneyland management and the tribes, with the tribes threatening a labor strike. In 1971, as a result of this labor unrest and the American public's waning interest in the cowboy and Indian genre, Um, It led Disneyland management to make the decision to locate the new bear country in this location. Uh, So any of you remember the Frontierland Indian Village? Oh, I do. Yeah. What did you think of it? I loved it. I I remember I used to look forward to dancing the friendship dance. Mm -hmm. That was a big, and I remember, I remember an older 
Native American gentleman dressed up and showing us he was making something. I remember that's my memory. And then also dancing with them. I can I can remember holding hands and dancing in circles. Yeah, and that that was the highlight. I think the centerpiece of the land was the the dance circle right yeah. on the edge of the rivers of America. Yeah, I I really like that land. I mean that area of frontier land. Is that now, Michael? I'm curious because that that description sounds very. Um, I was riding the um, the boat. Uh, oh my god, I am the worst Disney person ever. The big, um, the Mark, Mark Twain, Twain? Mm-hmm. yeah, around um, this weekend, and you know that we have that little village area that's like. Oh, the you scene. mean the Liberty Bell? In the Liberty Bell, yes. Okay. okay, that's what I called it, and somebody told me I was wrong. So, um, um, yeah, that that we have that little Native American Indian area that's set up on there, yeah. and I'm is that? Did you guys have that on yours when you used to go around her? Well, we had we had a, a almost like a, a sort of a, a full village. Um, okay. And they, they had structures set up. They had arts and crafts there. So and, you, and you went and interacted with them, and you it yes. was an actual yes. like guest. Yes. Oh, okay. So it wasn't but, just from afar. No, no. And tr- and actual Native American tribes took turns. Oh um, wow! Being at the park, representing their culture and their crafts, and their dance and their folklore. That is that is really cool. It was really well done, and and I I think at the time it was Disney was sort of ahead of himself because you know at that time in the fifties and early sixties you know it w- people were still into sort of the stereotyped um, Hollywood concept of the American Indians, and Walt wanted to uh, sort of counteract that and have people learn about the native the real Native American culture. And that's that was one of the reasons he had that there in Frontierland, and and to give the land authenticity. <clears throat> so, now, so now the excitement of a new land was mixed with disappointment. Um, the new land's main attraction, the Country Bear Jamboree, was its only attraction. Uh, due to its popularity, Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, two identical 307-seat theaters were built for Disneyland's version with a capacity of 2,000 guests per hour, which probably led to its demise. Um, the, the rest of the $8 million expansion included the new Ursula H. Bears Wilderness Outpost, which was a souvenir shop. The Indian Trading Post, which was unchanged from its time in the Indian Village, and without moving an inch, Davy Crockett's Explorer Canoes traveled from Frontierland to Bear Country. And there was a snack stand. And and that's all there was in this new land. Well, hold on a second. So the Matterhorn is not the only attraction that's changed lands. The canoes change lands. You're correct. Yeah. Learn something new. <laughs> Now, the gateway to Bear Country was a large simulated granite wall, and as guests passed by, they could hear the snores of Rufus, a hibernating bear. Now, physically, the land was very different from the old Indian village. The winding paths and tunnels that had marked the entrance to the Indian village were replaced by a wide, straight swath of road with a row of Western-style buildings encircling a dead-end street. Unlike the other realms of Disneyland where guests were clearly walking into the jungles of the Congo or the frontier of the Old West or a land of fantasy and magic, there was no clear backstory for this land. 
Why had Bears taken over what appeared to be a pristine Western town abandoned by its owners, uh, by its human owners, that there was no consistency with this land as there were with the others that had been designed under the guidance of Walt? All of these issues would prove to be a perpetual problem for this land, and by the end of the decade, the number of guests visiting Bear Country would dwindle. Attendance did rise slightly in 1972 to 8.4 million visitors, thanks to the Country Bear Jamboree. And in 1973, the Golden Bear Lounge, serving hamburgers and hot dogs, opened in February, treating diners to a lovely view of the rivers of America. It was later renamed the Hungry Bear Restaurant, with Wonder Bread as its sponsor. As I chronicled in my Dis Unplugged Connecting with Walt series, Roy Disney, brother of Walt Disney and co-founder of Walt Disney Productions, passed away on December 20th, 1971, at the age of 78. The company was now led by an executive management team, um, with Don Tatum as president, Card Walker, executive vice president and chief operating officer, Walt Disney's son, Ron Miller, executive producer, and Roy O. Disney's son, Roy E. Disney. Don Tatum issued a statement to assure concerned fans of Disney films and theme parks, the philosophy will continue to be the same, a constructive approach to amusement, entertainment, and recreation designed to appeal to the broad family audience throughout the world. In a 1972 interview with the Anaheim Bulletin, Jack Lindquist, in talking about Disneyland's 17th anniversary and what was coming next, revealed there would be an expansion in Disneyland's northwest portion scheduled to begin in 1974. Frontierland would be extended nine acres behind the mine train, crossing north over the berm. This new part of Frontierland would connect with Fantasyland to the east. Other plans Linquist spoke about included closing Fantasyland for a complete remodeling, converting the Rivers of America into a transportation link similar to the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad, and that Imagineers were revisiting the Edison Square and Chinatown concepts as possible expansions. In the 1970s, we saw the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World adapt an original Disneyland show, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, into the Hall of Presidents. Then Disneyland brought the Country Bear Jamboree over from the Magic Kingdom in 1973. In, well, in 1973, I should say, the Magic Kingdom packed up a Disneyland attraction and transported it across the country. General Electric had been the proud sponsor of the Carousel of Progress since the 1964 World's Fair. And after six years at Disneyland, GE felt they needed to share their corporate message with a new audience. And they were anxious to be a part of the new Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. In 1974, the Carousel of Progress was packed up and shipped east. This left a big empty show building in Disneyland's Tomorrowland which in those days was unthinkable. The bicentennial of the United States was in two years, and advertising, special programming, public events were being planned across the country. The population was looking forward to the celebrations of 1976 with excitement, and red, white, and blue was flowing through everyone's veins. 
It didn't take long for Imagineers to receive orders to come up with a patriotic spectacular in time for the bicentennial. Well, all eyes in Glendale focused on the empty Carousel Theater building in Tomorrowland. In a 1998 interview, Mark Davis recalled the inspiration for the Bicentennial show, none other than Disney animator Ward Kimball. Although Ward had appeared at the park many times playing trombone with the Firehouse 5 Plus 2, and many of his well-known scenes from classic Disney films had been recreated in Disneyland attractions, Ward had never designed an attraction at Disneyland. But here's the story of how he was the inspiration for an attraction. According to Mark Davis, several of us were on a river cruise down the Nile. We were all on the deck of the ship getting ready for a party when we saw Ward come walking out dressed up as an American flag. And that got me thinking. Well, what got Mark thinking, uh, what he got thinking about was the bicentennial American extravaganza. Mark had been working with Imagineer Albertino on on attraction concepts for the Carousel Theater building. Mark really wanted to design another audio-animatronic musical show. Mark, Al, and their team had been considering a show on music around the world, but with the American Bicentennial looming and the image of Ward Kimball dressed as an American flag, they decided to focus on the musical heritage of the United States. Now came the hard part. How to select 40 songs representing 200 years of American music. They started with a list of 1,000 songs. And looking back at the project, Albertina said, we tried to place every tune into a certain time span of American music, grasp a feeling for the melody, and picture in our own minds a character to capture the comical aspects of the song. The mood we wanted to create for the attraction was built around humor. So in listening to this large volume of music, our goal was to pick out a joke from the song and eventually draw to it. Mark Davis said they hired a piano player to perform tunes so they could listen as they searched for a character to fit a song or a song to fit a character. One day they listened to over 150 tunes. Besides selecting the songs, Mark and Al had to design the show to fit the existing Carousel Theater building, which meant there had to be an opening, four acts, and a closing, as there had been for the old Carousel of Progress show, with each being precisely 3 minutes and 15 (laughs) seconds. Mark and Al wrote the show in four acts, the Early South, Old West, Gay 90s, and Modern Times, and they selected songs to match each of these musical eras. They selected Yankee Doodle to transition between each scene. After completing the story, the show was rushed into production so it would open in time for the nation's bicentennial celebration. America Sings opened on June 29, 1974 at a cost of $6 million with a cast of 114 audio-animatronic animated characters. The largest and most elaborate state-of-the-art audio-animatronic cast that had ever been created for a Disneyland attraction, all programmed by Imagineer Waithel Rogers. 
All the characters were designed by Mark Davis, and the engineering team had become quite fond of them. Albertino said, They had become our friends. We believe in them. We don't think of them as pieces of machinery. We don't want the audience to either. We want them to think of our characters as real persons or animals in this case. If we don't believe in them, then no one is going to. Mark Davis believed Walt would have liked America Sings. Said Mark, Walt loved the creative things and the things that were new. I believe he would have loved this show. The patriotic hosts were an eagle named Sam, voiced by Burl Ives, and an owl, voiced by Sam Edwards, who was never named in the show, but was referred to as Owly. The songs were performed by many well-known Disney personalities, including Burl Ives, Rex Allen, who's best known as Father in the original Carousel of Progress, Western star Chill Wills, and Betty Taylor, who portrayed Slewfoot Sue at the Golden Horseshoe Review. I remember they used to have a wee pop goes the weasel and be, yes. uh, remember that when I was little, I, I would always look forward to him. <laughs> he was a rascal. And you, and you never knew when he was going to pop up. Right. In every scene, it was at a different time. At the opening for the, attra- as the opening for the attraction drew near, a dark cloud seemed to come over the attraction. A few days before the attraction opened, Albertino fell into a stage pit, but was not seriously hurt. At the grand opening, a large American flag was displayed upside down, which is considered unpatriotic. Then, slightly more than a week after the grand opening of America Sings, the first cast member to die on the job at Disneyland occurred when 18-year-old Deborah Stone, an attraction hostess, became caught between a stationary stage and a wall of the revolving audience platform. Attraction operators were notified by a guest who heard Miss Stone's screams from an adjacent theater. Immediately after the accident, America Sings was closed for two days so a safety light could be installed that alerted the attraction's operators if a cast member got too close to the walls. Eventually, the solid walls were replaced with breakaway walls to prevent similar accidents from occurring. The celebration of the nation's bicentennial was a great success across the country. Unfortunately, once the bicentennial ended... America Sings remained and seemed totally out of place in Tomorrowland. Attendance began to rapidly decline. With a capacity of 4,000 guests per hour, even 2,000 guests per hour was considered a failure by Disneyland management. However, they had other priorities for Disneyland, so the Critters and America Sings continued to sing up until April 10th, 1988. So, so um, do, you, do you all have any memories of America Sings besides the Pop Goes the Weasel? Oh, all of the songs. We, I, uh, that was one of probably, I don't know about my family's favorite, one of my favorite. I used to love to go there and sing out loud. It was always air conditioned, so it was, it was a cool place to go. And I remember um, uh, the, psych, the hippie. Oh, the um, chickens on the motorcycle? Yeah, oh, twisting yes. and turning. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I love them. Yeah. And what I loved is at its height, when, when there was a lot of enthusiasm for this attraction, I loved how the whole audience clapped. 
Yeah. You know, especially the transition song, Yankee Doodle transition song. So um, it was wonderful. Yeah, it did. It did run too long, you know, and but um, but it was just a delightful song. And the audio animatronics are really well done. There are I did rewatch it on YouTube when I was preparing for this episode. Um, and it, it just reminded me just how how really well done those audio animatronics were. Right. And and of course, in a future episode, we're going to talk about how we can meet those characters all over again. <laughs> so now, now those who knew Walt. Oh, oh, Tom, did you ever see America Sings? I, I'm sure I did, but I don't remember any details. Yeah, yeah, it, it was just, just sweet. And and don't you love the fact that they just couldn't stand having an empty show building? <laughs> so they, they immediately started working on designing something and, and then how long did it sit empty yeah okay yeah only not even three years oh is that no. all it wasn't even that long between america sings and oh oh you mean oh no after. wasn't that like a decade or yeah, something okay, yeah yeah i mean yeah after, before post, it became post american sings, yes yeah, yeah. Now, now those who knew walt sometimes quipped that the reason walt built disneyland was so he'd have a place to put his train now, the, the Santa Fe Railroad sponsor of the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad since opening day had carried passengers across the western United States for more than a century. The railroad made a surprising announcement without warning one day that it would no longer carry passengers and would only carry freight, leaving a new entity called Amtrak to take on the passenger travel. Santa Fe was willing to remain as the official sponsor of the park's railroad, but only if Disney replaced the turn-of-the-century steam locomotives with diesel engines to represent the modern Santa Fe freight trains. <laughs> yeah, well, we all know, of course, Disney turned down Santa Fe's offer, and the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad became the Disneyland Railroad on October 1st, 1974. The Santa Fe name and logo was also removed from the monorail train of the future in Tomorrowland. In 1974, the investment in Disneyland was more than $150 million. And despite setting attendance records on Christmas Day and Easter Sunday, annual attendance fell slightly to $9 million. Now, Disneyland had been flying guests to the moon long before the United States had landed on the moon in 1969. Even after the last astronaut walked on the moon in 1972, Disneyland's flights to the moon continued until January 2, 1975. On March 22, 1975, Disneyland launched its first mission to Mars, which was a mar remarkably similar to a flight to the moon, except, <laughs> <laughs> except for using actual footage shot by a NASA satellite. Um, McDonnell Douglas continued its sponsorship of the attraction. In July 1975, Disneyland celebrated its 20th anniversary. Bill Cottrell, president of Retlaw, which was Walt's company that still owned the Disneyland Railroad locomotives and train cars, wanted to do something to commemorate the occasion. Now, heads of state, royalty, important government officials, and other dignitaries continued to visit Disneyland. And Bill decided to restore the railroad's official observation car 106, the Grand Canyon, which had been retired in 1966, for these officials to tour the park. 
A State Department official once said, Walt sold America and Americana to foreign dignitaries. I have no doubt that Walt Disney and Disneyland, in a very real way, have contributed to better understanding and a friendlier attitude on the part of world leaders to the U.S. And Bill thought restoring the observation car for VIPs to take a grand circle tour of Disneyland would be the perfect way to continue Walt's desire to promote world harmony. In June 1974, the Grand Canyon Observation Coach was transported to the new backstage train roundhouse, which is not round. Um, to ensure authenticity, Bill researched private turn-of-the-century railroad cars. He also enlisted the assistance of Walt Disney's widow, Lillian, to help him create a train car would, would, that Walt would be proud of. <clears throat> The exterior of the coach was repainted in a burgundy color and trimmed with red and green doors. The four cores were embellished with 23-carat gold-leaf scrolls. The interior of the coach was adorned with solid mahogany and other hardwoods. Stained glass panels were installed in the upper windows encircling the coach. Claret-colored window draperies trimmed with gold fringe were hung. The love seat and two matching chairs were upholstered in matching claret-colored fabric, and the floor was laid with a custom-made red rose-patterned wool carpet, and the gold ceiling lights remained from the original coach. Victorian-era antiques were located to install in the coach, including five marble tables and a brass jardinier for a potted palm tree. Photos of the Disney family were hung on the walls. Also on display in the coach was the yellow one-eighth scale model caboose Walt had personally built for his backyard, Carrollwood Pacific Railroad. <clears throat> in keeping with the tradition of naming fine rail coaches and other modes of transportation after women, the restored coach was christened Lily Bell because it was a name they believed Walt would have chosen. On July 17, 1975, Mrs. Lillian Disney Truins and her husband John boarded the coach as her first passengers. Now, ha you've all seen the Lily Bell, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is beautiful. It's actually, you can see it now. It's on display at the I was just going to say, is it the one that's parked there? Right. I think, I think they actually changed it the day the weather was going to be bad. When I, when I was there last, yeah. So I'll have to go check it out this time. Yeah, I know um, they will bring it in. If the, Well, actually, what they'll do is if the weather's bad, I think right now they, they push it back into the um, primeval world tunnel. <laughs> yeah, the Grand Canyon. Oh, is that where they put it when it's raining? That makes sense. Well, Instead of taking it all the way to the roundhouse. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Can it make its way to the roundhouse right now? I guess it could. Well, yeah, yeah, it could. Yeah. Yeah. Going the back way. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, the, um, yeah, because I know some of the train last time I was there at New Orleans Square looking at it, it was um, weathered um, from being out and not protected. So, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, so it's nice. So if, if you're in the park, if you've never seen the Lily Bell, go up to the Main Street Station and um, check it out. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It is. They'll, they'll let you look in, but you can't go inside. Right, right. Yeah, but, uh, you know. But yeah, I mean, and I have ridden it uh, a few times, so it's nice. I think my name is because you're famous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, scratched, I, scratched I think... in the the handle of one of the. <laughs> they they used. I don't know if they still have it. They used to have a little guest book in there, so I know I signed it a long time ago. 
Um, now, it wouldn't have been an anniversary without Disney management announcing their future plans for the park. So Card Walker, president of Walt Disney Productions, stated, It would be fun to have Walt quarterback us today and tell us where we have gone wrong. I'm sure we haven't done it right. I guarantee you that I am not saying that maliciously. Card was well aware that Walt believed anything could always be improved. um, Card went on to announce plans for the construction of a Pinocchio dark ride and an attraction based on the film Fantasia. Two new thrill rides were also in the planning stages, including a raft journey through an all-new primeval world, complete with steaming swamps and menacing prehistoric (laughs) beasts. A new attraction, Thunder Mesa, was also being planned as a thrilling train adventure set in the very middle of early Western history. And for guests to visit two or three times a year, even more audio animatronic figures would be added to the Jungle Cruise. On the opening day of Disneyland, the horses of King Arthur's carousel were painted in a wide array of colors, black, tan, auburn, and gray. But John Hench had noticed that most children wanted to ride the white horse, the hero or good guy's horse. So in 1975, Imagineer Kim Irvine led a project to have all the horses restored and repainted Arctic white. What year did she do this? 1975. She's been around a while. I know, she's still around. She has, and she looks awfully good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The carousel canopy was also replaced in an effort to create a stronger visual link between Sleeping Beauty Castle and King Arthur's carousel. Sleeping Beauty murals were added to the center housing of the carousel. Park attendance in 1975 grew by 5%, with more than 9.7 million guests visiting the park. In the summer of 1976, the Alwig logo was removed from the Disneyland monorails. Best known for its work in constructing the Disneyland and Seattle monorail systems, Alwig went on to construct a number of systems around the world. In 1960, Alwig's technology was licensed by Hitachi Monorail, which continues to construct monorail systems today. Alwig ran into financial difficulties and ceased operations, and its technology was acquired by other companies. You can still see their sign, though, in Seattle, near the Space Needle. The popularity of the Matterhorn had proven there, there is a place for thrill rides at Disneyland. In 1964, when Walt Disney was working on plans for the refurbishment of Tomorrowland, he approached John Hench, who is now the vice president of design at WED, to discuss his idea for an indoor dark roller coaster, which led to a Disneyland project named Spaceport that would be the anchor attraction for 1967's new Tomorrowland. When, when talking about the meetings he had with Walt Disney about Spaceport, John Hinch recalled, I think the original sketch for the Spaceport was on an envelope, really. <laughs> I had an idea of a type of architecture, which was a cartil- cartilaginous, uh, which is like having a skeleton composed entirely or mainly of cartilage. Um, at, at least that's what I called it. <clears throat> um, the Spaceport would feature a steel track roller coaster with four separate serpentine coaster tracks twisting and tunneling all around each other. 
The vehicles would emerge from openings in the structure at the top of the building, similar to how the bobsleds emerge onto the ledges of the Matterhorn. Those exterior space loops were called satelloids. In June 1966, with the final design of spaceport resembling a space-age Matterhorn, and it was approved, the attraction name was officially changed to Space Mountain. And then it was then put on indefinite hold. <laughs> so, so the company could focus on Project X, the construction of what would become Walt Disney World. To listen to stories about the development, design, and construction of Walt Disney World, please listen to my Connecting with Walt podcast, part of the Diz Unplugged Podcast Network. Shameless plug. <coughs> I know. <laughs> I never miss an opportunity. <laughs> Um, the other problem with Spaceport was, like Walt himself, it was ahead of its time. The technology to make Spaceport a reality simply didn't exist in 1966. Well, this technology to make Matterhorn didn't exist. The issue was running so many trains right, simultaneously. Right. And not have them crash into each other. Yeah, that would be um, bad. With the opening like of roller, co roller, co roller coaster yeah. ki tycoon yeah. roller coasters. Um, now, with the opening of Walt Disney World in 1971, Disney management was a bit surprised to see the resort was popular with all ages, including teenagers. Said Marty Scalar, right off the bat, we had misjudged the audience in a lot of ways. We thought that Florida would have a lot older population. And if you look back on the opening day menu for Walt Disney World, there were no thrill rides and a lot of theater shows. Imagineers were tasked with how to bring more thrills to the park and follow Dick Nunes's direction. We don't just want more thrill rides. We want thrill attractions with stories to go with them. So, how would the Imagineers keep a Disney in thrill rides? A Magic Kingdom's version of Disneyland's Matterhorn was considered, but the Imagineers concluded there wasn't enough space in Fantasyland. However, there was plenty of space in Tomorrowland, so they turned their attention to ideas for a space-themed thrill ride. And as they say, good ideas never die at Imagineering. The plans for Disneyland Spaceport were brought out and re-examined. Space Mountain's time had finally come, and the technology had caught up with Walt's vision. Only it was to be built at Walt Disney World, not Disneyland. The construction of the attraction was put on the fast track and opened in the Magic Kingdom on May 27, 1977. It was an instant hit. On opening day, John Hench stated, What you are going to see today is not quite the same as the original, but it is pretty close. When the design team returned to Burbank from Orlando, they were assigned to bring the spaceport home to Disneyland. Mm -hmm. The challenge of building Space Mountain at Disneyland was indeed space. That is, finding enough space mm -hmm. in Tomorrowland for the attraction. Space Mountain was designed in the mid-1960s, and a lot had changed in Disneyland's Tomorrowland since then. A new Tomorrowland had been built, and the original location designated for Space Mountain had been encroached upon by new buildings. The other problem was size. 
As we know, guests find Disneyland to be much more intimate, due in part to its buildings being smaller than those at Walt Disney World, which gives Disneyland its own charm. If the Orlando-sized Space Mountain were built at Disneyland, it would tower over every building on Main Street, USA, destroying the park's sense of scale. To deal with all these issues, the Imagineers redesigned Space Mountain as a smaller building with a single track instead of the intertwining double track at Walt Disney World. And also the foundation of this smaller Space Mountain was constructed 15 feet underground, so a significant part of the mountain would be hidden from view. Groundbreaking for Disneyland Space Mountain was in June 1975, less than six months after the original version blasted off at Walt Disney World. It took 1,000 tons of steel to construct Disneyland's mountain. Space Mountain was to be a journey into the vast outer reaches of our galaxy. This illusion was created through the use of controlled lighting, projected images, and the speed of the ride vehicles. The development of a new computer system that could slow the ride vehicles in different brake zones to maintain a safe distance between the vehicles. Um, This meant that this new technology could allow uh, multiple vehicles to be simultaneously controlled on the same track in the dark. Now, Disneyland's rocket ride vehicles offered side-by-side seating with a lap bar and could hold up to 12 passengers. Space Mountain was the first roller coaster to use nylon wheels and ball bearings on its ride vehicles instead of polyurethane and standard automotive bearings. The 12 rocket vehicles could reach speeds of up to 32 miles per hour along 3,500 feet of track and hurl 2,160 guests per hour through space and into another galaxy. After two years of construction, grand opening ceremonies for Space Mountain were held on May 27, 1977. Special guests included NASA's Mercury Project astronauts, Captain Scott Carpenter, Colonel Gordon Cooper, Senator John Glenn, Captain Walter Schirra, Admiral Glenn Shepard, Donald Deke Slayton, and Betty Grissom, widow of Gus Grissom. According to the press release, after the astronauts rode the attraction, they were heard to say it was just like the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it is. (laughs) Wow. But Kathy Kathy Whirling of our um, Walt Disney World show, she would have just gone nuts seeing all these Mercury astronauts. So um, now, now, Space Mountain was just one part of the $20 million addition to Tomorrowland. Also included was the two-story Starcade Arcade with more than 60 electronic games, Disneyland's first permanent amphitheater, the Space Stage, with seating for 1,100 guests, and the 670-seat Space Place Restaurant. And the Wedway People Mover track was realigned so it could provide riders with a preview of Space Mountain before traveling through the new Super Speed Tunnel, where film images were projected along the side walls at rapid speeds, giving the illusion of speed to the slow-moving People Mover trains. Do you remember Super Speed Tunnel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a hoot. And then they remember were... when it became the world of Tron? Tron yes. Yeah, because yeah. then I was going to say, then oh, it changed. That sounds cool. And... 
Yeah, yeah, that was the original Tron, and they had uh, all of the ships. I don't remember what they were all named. Um, you know, where it would fly by. Yeah. So and, you're uh, in the people mover, and you're surrounded by this, and you feel like you're going fast. Sort of, it was kind of surreal. But then again, we're talking late seventies, so yeah, <laughs> or mid seventies. It's time. Yeah. Uh, you know. Now, Sleeping Beauty Castle also received some attention in 1977. The castle walkthrough with dioramas depicting scenes of the animated film was closed. Um, the plywood flats making up the scenes were replaced with dioramas similar in style to the displays in the windows of the Emporium on Main Street, USA, that included small audio animatronic figures with limited motion. Um, Hand-decorated books were added to describe each scene, and new scenes were added, including one of Briar Rose dancing with her forest animal friends, dressed in the red hat and cloak of Prince Philip. The space where the goons used to live was sealed, with only the wooden doors and their metal hinges remaining. The Tchaikovsky score used in the film played in the background throughout the walkthrough. Now, the opening of Space Mountain and the introduction of an updated version of the Main Street Electrical Parade in 1975 helped set a new attendance record of 10.5 million guests. That just seems so quaint. You know, <laughs> standards. It's like an empty park every day. Yeah. <laughs> in 1976, another opening day attraction was closed for an extensive refurbishment. When it reopened on December 18th, guests sailing on the Jungle Cruise saw seven new scenes and 31 new audio-animatronic animals. Many of these had first been installed in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom and were now recreated at Disneyland. Three King Cobras now guarded the Cambodia ruins, at the, and at the end of the ruins lurked a Bengal tiger. The scene where the riverboats had startled two baby rhinos being protected by their mother was now replaced with gorillas monkeying around in a safari base camp. When the riverboats turned onto the Congo River, there were two giraffes peering down from the treetops before coming up on the African veldt. The African veldt, added in 1964, now had the animals the Imagineers were too busy to construct due to the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. And a scene with two gorillas was replaced with a python attacking a water buffalo. The riverboats were also redesigned to correct a structural issue that had caused them to sometimes derail when making the sharp turn at Schweitzer Falls. Mm -hmm. Since the Rainbow Caverns mine train was extended and reimagined in 1960 as the mine train through nature's wonderland, 30 million guests had ridden through Nature's Wonderland until the last mine train chugged past Cascade Peak on January 2nd, 1977. Ridership had been declining for years, and park management was under pressure to add more thrill rides, and the mine train through Nature's Wonderland occupied a lot of land that could be used for other, more exciting adventures. Once again... An attraction designed for one park ended up first being built in another. You can see there, there's now a symbiotic relationship between Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom in the 70s. Um, when the Magic Kingdom opened at Walt Disney World, New Orleans Square and Pirates of the Caribbean were left out of that park since it was close to the, new, to the real New Orleans. Um, Imagineers reasoned that the land would not feel foreign or exotic to guests. 
Now, Mark Davis was proud of Pirates of the Caribbean, but he was a man who always wanted to top himself. So in place of New Orleans Square and Pirates of the Caribbean, he designed a new attraction called Thunder Mesa for the Magic Kingdom's Frontierland. This would be multiple attractions in the largest show building ever made for a Disney park. The massive show building would be hidden by a large mesa. On the exterior, guests would enjoy a thrilling attraction of a runaway mine train speeding across the mesa, rolling down its hills and into its valleys. Hiking trails would provide guests with spectacular views of the park from atop the mesa. Inside the show building would be the Western River Expedition, which was an entire wild western town along the banks of a winding river. A Mark Davis described the show as being built around the things we associate with the West. Cook wagons, cowboy desperados, a bank robbery, dance hall girls, and a herd of longhorn steers singing Home on the Range. And, <laughs> and, and all of these, and all of, of course, all of these audio animatronic figures were done with um, Mark Davis's humor. Um, um, park management, though, became concerned with the costs associated with all the audio animatronic figures needed for the attraction. So Mark suggested constructing the show building and the mesa with the runaway train first, then constructing the Western River Expedition inside later to spread out the cost. The idea to scale back Thunder Mesa and just build the runaway mine train attraction was floated around Imagineering, or around WED. So Imagineer Tony Baxter was tasked with creating the model of the scaled back Thunder Mesa. When Tony Baxter unveiled the model for WED management to review, John Hench asked Tony what he thought of it. Tony immediately said, I don't like it. It has no story, no theme. It's just a train rolling across a hillside, nothing more. Now, I had this other idea I was working on. In no time at all, Tony was creating a model of a runaway mine train streaking through the peaks of Monument Valley. The attraction was greenlit for development. However, other forces were at work. Hmm. Since <laughs> opening in 1971... The number one complaint at Walt Disney World from guests was that there was no Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. <laughs> After watching its development on television and it being so closely identified with Disneyland, guests expected to have it at the Magic Kingdom. Park management finally capitulated. A redesigned version of Pirates of the Caribbean was approved for the Magic Kingdom, and Thunder Mesa was canceled. Now back to Disneyland, where management is looking for an attraction to replace the mine train through Nature's Wonderland. So Thunder Mesa was greenlit for Disneyland, and the mine train through Nature's Wonderland was quickly closed and torn down well before construction began on Thunder Mesa on July 1st, 1977. Tony Baxter worked on reshaping his Thunder Mesa design for Disneyland. Since Thunder Mesa would be visible from Fantasyland, 
Tony determined the shapes of Monument Valley were too straight and too realistic for Disneyland. So he redesigned the sprawling Monument Valley design to fit the smaller scale of Disneyland with the softer-looking, more fanciful hoodoos of Bryce Canyon. As a tribute to Walt, Disney's, Walt Disney's um, 32nd wedding anniversary gift to Lillian, Tony designed the huge tip of the mountain to have a similar appearance as the petrified tree in Frontierland. So check it out. I have to look at that again. Yeah, check it out next time you're there. Since Bryce Canyon does not have any mesas, Tony renamed the attraction Big Thunder Mountain, with the name coming from a large waterfall the original mine train passed along on its ride through nature's wonderland. There was also a little, um, a little thunder waterfall. Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was one of the first Disney attractions to use computers to aid in the design of the coaster. And Tony Baxter has said, I pride myself that when you look at Big Thunder, nowhere does it look like the rockwork was built around the train. It always looks like the train had to configure to the mountain. Disney landscape designer Bill Evans transformed the mine train through nature's wonderland landscape into the mountain landscape. Imagineer Pat Burke located hundreds of pieces of authentic mining equipment to dress the Big Thunder Mountain set. Basically, the attraction's backstory is the runaway trains are leftover mine trains from a gold mining operation in the 1800s that were abandoned along with the accompanying mining town of Rainbow Ridge. Gold was discovered at Big Thunder Mountain and the nearby town quickly became a thriving mining town. Tragically, the miners who built the mine trains to transport the ore didn't realize the mountain was sacred to the Native American tribe, and those who disturbed the mountain were cursed. The earthquake in the tunnels destroyed the mines and killed enough miners, causing the town to be quickly abandoned, leaving behind only the possessed mine trains. Guests may not notice the amusing names of the locomotives. I am brave. You be bold. I am fearless. Mm. You are daring. I be hardy. And you are courageous. Each unmanned locomotive pulls five cars, which carries 30 guests, each giving the attraction a top capacity of 2,400 guests per hour. The trains travel at a top speed of 28 miles per hour along a 2,671-foot track. The $15.8 million Big Thunder Mountain Railroad opened for guests at Disneyland on September 15, 1979. Guests were also delighted to discover a new pathway between Frontierland and New Fantasyland. Imagineers had removed the main Fantasyland food stand and built Big Thunder Trail, connecting Fantasyland and Frontierland. And many of the trees along the path had been planted where the park opened when the park opened in 1955. And and I wonder where they are now. <laughs> so, anyway, oh, and even before Disneyland's Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was complete. Walt Disney World approved the construction of their own version based on the original larger Monument Valley design created by Tony Baxter four years earlier. You'll all be happy to know many of the critters that resided in Nature's Wonderland did find new homes in both our Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and the Walt Disney World Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. 
and Tom, you'll be happy to know your your goat trick goat <laughs> was oh, was God. a resident of oh, the wow. mind stream through nature's wonderland. And many of the other other animals we don't see, let's just say they they continue to reside um, on the. <laughs> <laughs> That's sad. It is. Although, who knows? They may have found them building the Star right, Wars exactly. expansion. <clears throat> Uh, when space now with Space Mountain, I'm um, drawing a majority of the crowds in 1977. The Imagineers decided to take the opportunity to close the park's first roller coaster and reimagine it so it was closer to Walt's original concept. The Matterhorn was closed in November 1977 for a four million dollar makeover. According to John Hench, Walt always wanted to include a snowman in the mountain. So the time had come to give the elusive, abominable snowman a home. Three snowmen were installed in the caverns, one for each track and one visible from both tracks. Additionally, a pair of glowing red eyes and snarling growls were added to the top of the lift hills. Imagineer Blaine Gibson sculpted the eight-foot figure of the snowman, who came to be nicknamed Harold. When the mountain was first opened in 1959, the steel girders and support beams were visible to riders inside the mountain. Now guests would plummet through new ice caverns with glowing ice crystals. New special effects were installed, including the sounds of howling winds and snowstorms, fog, and refrigeration to cool the interior and give guests the feeling they were inside a mountain with ice and snow. Many of the large openings were sealed, so guests saw less of the park from the attraction. The original bobsled vehicles were single cars. New tandem bobsleds were installed that increased ridership by 71%. Since the bobsleds could carry more guests, the chain lift had to be replaced to handle the heavier loads and the track reinforced. Booster motors were placed in sections of the track to give the bobsleds an extra push in key locations. The new bobsleds were also faster and could reach up to 30 miles per hour. A new computer system, control podiums, and an updated maintenance area were also included in the refurbishment. Harold welcomed guests on the Matterhorn bobsleds in May of 1978. Although the 1970s were the first decade in which Disneyland expanded without Walt Disney, his influence and philosophy of design and story continued to be an influence to the Imagineers who had worked closely with him and to the emerging new generation of Imagineers. The Disneyland landscape had changed with some beloved attractions now a memory, but guests now had three Disneyland mountains to scale during their visit to the park. Do any of you have any any um, other memories you'd like to share of, of you know Disneyland in the seventies or any of these attractions? I'm trying I to... was not alive yet, <laughs> <laughs> so no, not for me. <laughs> to me, that was such a such a fantastic time for us to go. I was those those are my teen years, hmm? so I remember, and I remember over in um. Tomorrowland, the bet they would have the music where so many young people would be dancing, and I could hardly wait till I was old enough to be out there dancing too. Oh, with the Tomorrowland Terrace and the yeah. Tomorrowland Terrace, yes. Mm -hmm. so for I for that. some reason, in the back of my mind, I remember 
the excitement over Mission to Mars, but I don't remember anything specific about it. That we always wanted to go on that, but I don't remember anything specific about it, which is weird. I remember the control center, right? I was just a baby. Yeah, the control center that they had built earlier with Tom Morrow. Yeah, and they still had that crazy albatross scene. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are... Yeah, the 1967 Tomorrowland was just amazing. And then the addition of Space Mountain made it even better. I remember when that first opened up, and we used to, it's changed so much the way the queue is set up. Mm-hmm. Remember, we used to take an elevator to the top? Yeah, oh, the escalator. The escalator, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. And we I think an that escal- was added later. I don't think that was there first, was it? No, well, they used to have the, like a dancing area. Remember, they had that stage right. down below. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember that they had uh, go-go boots and stuff when they'd be... They'd be yeah. performing underneath Space Mountain. Yeah, because I was and very then, futuristic. <laughs> go, go, boots. <laughs> right? <laughs> I just remember that that look of, of them. And they were always look so sharp in those performances. So we used to watch the, the different performances there, and then we'd go on Space Mountain. And to us, that was such a, a unique ride. And we'd always look for the chocolate chip cookie. Mm-hmm. So they say, although although Dis, Dis, Disney claims that that really wasn't a chocolate chip cookie, that was an urban legend. Right. <laughs> oh well, it was supposed to be an asteroid, but it was a chocolate right. chip cookie. Luisa in the chat and <laughs> mix on Mixer was talking about the um, the rooms over on the oh. other side where you could make phone calls. Oh, America the Beautiful, yeah, those yeah. rooms. Yeah, 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 yeah. I always remember those too, where we, you could where you could do uh, like a. Basically a speakerphone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You'd go into, they had two rooms that you would walk into with the speakerphone. And I remember when we had, a, this was 73, my, I had six cousins come out and spend the month with us from Texas. And we went to Disneyland one day and we called one of the moms on the speakerphone. Collect and, probably, right? No, <laughs> no, my dad paid. Okay. So. Um, but I just remember how incredulous she was that she was like, and all of you can hear me at one time. And we're all like, yes. And yeah. it was just, that was a, that was a cool, uh, yeah. cool room. Plus I used to love that when the people mover would go th- and we would see um, inside space mountain. And remember they had like the glowing sides on the cars and you could see the, yes. the, bo- the cars just rushing around. I remember that. And let me see, there was that. And do you remember when we used to go in Circle Vision and they would have play the flag game and you had to guess what flag, what state the flag represented and it was kind of like a abstract representation of the states? Mm-hmm. We would do that while we were waiting for the next show. Yeah. And you would, and the people mover would go over and you could see it through there. It was just really cool. It was. It was a lot of fun. It was mm-hmm. But but now we have what we have. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. as you're as you're going through with all of the additions, my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, snap! It's like the memory comes back into. Uh, I can remember when how it used to be like we were talking about the Jungle Cruise and when they added. I remember when they added the gorillas. I didn't. I do not remember the rhinos before. Sorry, mm-hmm. rhino. But now <laughs> that you mentioned it, I do remember the giraffes that they used to have there. It was just yeah. very. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it is. It's fun memories to go back. 
mm-hmm. and, and revisit all this. Well, and in, and in the next episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, we'll begin 1980 with the 25th anniversary celebration of Disneyland. Uh, this decade signals a changing of the old guard as the next generation of Imagineers begin to impose their ideas and designs for the park. We'll see the end of the classic A through E tickets, a new Fantasyland rise from the old, more thrill rides open, and the first attractions based on non-Disney properties welcome guests into a new Disney era led by a new executive team. Um, Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland including the Disneyland Story, the unofficial guide to the evolution of Walt Disney's dream by Sam Genoway, Disneyland Inside Story by Randy Bright, Disneyland The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, The Disney Mountains Imagineering at its Peak by Jason Sorrell, Tony Baxter, the first of the second generation of Walt Disney Imagineers by Tim O'Brien, And I remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. All right, folks, that is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Diz Unplugged podcasts this week. And, of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.